Okay, well let let's get started. So yeah, like I said, this class is it's designed to you know give you the the basics of what I would think an adult would need to get baptized. You know, so like I often think of it like, um, you know, like what 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 are what are the things that someone would have to know, you know, so that they know what they're getting themselves into. You know, I mean, some churches will just baptize anybody. Oh, you want to be baptized? Oh, okay, I'll baptize you. I mean, that isn't my approach. If if someone wants to be baptized, I say, fantastic. So let's work together so you know what you're getting yourself into. Because uh, we do believe in only one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So um, so I, I like to start with a, a kind of big picture, like worldview conversation. Okay, so worldview is a, a word that I use a lot because um, it's, it's kind of descriptive of what we think. So um, everybody has a worldview. Okay, everybody has kind of guiding uh, beliefs, you know, about that kind of guide, you know, their thoughts and their, and their shapes and everything. Um, and if someone is really committed to that worldview, then it's going to make certain other things impossible to believe. Um, so I like to kind of narrow it down. Like if I'm talking to someone who's a new Christian or not a Christian, I like to narrow it down to two basic worldviews that are competing very, very simply, um, supernatural and natural. Okay. So, um, supernatural, that word now kind of means like you like to look for ghosts, you know, or, or something like that. Um, it just, all that, all it means is that there's nature. And then there's more to nature as well. There, it, there are things that are supernatural, more than nature. The naturalist, uh, although that word could mean you really love to spend time with trees and flowers and things like that, um, it, it really, what it, scientifically it means you're committed to the truth that nature is all that there is, right? So, you know, how did the universe come to be? Well, it just popped into existence or it just always has been you know, or it's self-creating, you know. Um, so the difference between a naturalist and a supernaturalist is that we both look at nature, you know, we both look at everything that there is. And the supernaturalist says, I believe the only possible cause for all this being there is a being, a personal, intelligent, powerful, timeless, immaterial being that brought this into existence. That is the definition of supernatural. It's more than nature, you know. A naturalist really has no answer, and they don't seek to provide an answer, or they do, but they come up with, I think, really bad arguments. Like, there was a book a few years ago that was called, like, The, the Universe from Nothing. It's by Lawrence Krauss. I, I can't remember exactly the title of the book, but A Universe from Nothing or something like that. So he argued that all this could have come into being from nothing because we don't really know what takes place at the, the quantum level of the of you know of, of matter, right? Like the very, very lowest matter. We don't really know what goes on and it's kind of a mystery and it could things can happen. But even if you're talking about space or laws, you're still talking about something. You know, we can't even conceive of of nothing. You know, um, if if I told you to try to think of like nothing you would probably think of a big black space or a big white space. Well, that's not nothing. That's a big black space in space, color, you know. 
And so no matter how, how hard we try, we can't even conceive really of what nothing is. We can define it, but we can't conceive it. So the naturalist has a real dilemma. I mean, a very, very serious dilemma. Um, and communist, by the way, would be committed to naturalism, ultimately. I mean, materialism, naturalism. Yeah, um, they have to be. Because if you're, if you're an atheist, you have to be committed to this. An atheist, by definition, cannot be supernaturalist. They've ruled that out before the game ever started. Um, so, um, you know, they have to believe that something can come from nothing. They have to believe that. Or they have to believe that it has always existed. But when we look at the universe, that is, in my opinion, from what I've read... I'm convinced that that has now been proven to be absolutely impossible because the universe is expanding. And so the Big Bang Theory, which is that matter basically had to begin at a, a localized point for it to have been expanding. In other words, if it had always been expanding, we would all be dead now because <laughs> right. it'd all be too cold you know, in, in space for any, anybody to survive. And one day that'll happen. One day the universe expands so much and that life won't be possible anywhere. But until that day... It's pretty evident that there was a point where, you know, the universe was nothing or even very, very small, and then it has expanded into what it is today. So, you know, naturalism or materialism or whatever you want to call it, to me is absolutely absurd. You know, you would have to be a nut to believe naturalism. Now, there's a lot of really, really smart people who are naturalist and materialists. I understand that. Um, just like there are a lot of really, really smart people who are supernaturalists. Um, but, I, but I begin with that because um, I think that, you know, um, everything that we talk about from here on is going to assume supernaturalism. It, it, you know, when I talk about God revealing himself to us in the words of Scripture, when I talk about God becoming flesh, when I talk about God changing the heart of a man to want to be a follower of Jesus. Those are all supernatural things. None, none of this is natural, okay? I mean, it takes place in the natural world because God created the natural world, but it's all supernatural. I mean, there are people that, for example, you could argue about the resurrection. You know, you can make a historical argument for the resurrection that's very strong. You know, uh, we have multiple eyewitness accounts, uh, women announced the resurrection, which would have been unusual, um, why would they have chosen women if that didn't really happen that way? Um, we know that Pilate was the governor at that time. We know that Herod was the leader of the Jews at that time. Um, you know, you have all these different, you know, you, you have the, there's no, there's no body in the tomb, yes. you know, no one ever found the body. It would have been easy to re rebuke. And there, there's sort of all of these things that you could demonstrate to show that like the resurrection really happened historically. Happened yeah. But if you're a naturalist, you can't believe it. So it assumes, you know, supernaturalism. You know, supernaturalism has to be the worldview to make any of this possible. So before I say one word about, you know, why I think Christianity is true, I always want to lay my, my worldview foundation. And I'm not very nice when it comes to non-believers. I think that it's not just that they are really smart and they just kind of can't believe in God. I believe they don't like God and they hate God because they want to be the Lord of their own life. So that's the first sin and the great sin, is that all of us, every human being, wants to be the Lord of their own life. We all want to be God, and we all hate to, to, to worship God.
because that means that he's God of our life and we're not in control. And so, um, anyway, okay, so that's the first big worldview question, just big, big, big picture, supernatural or, or naturalists, okay. Once you establish that, um, then the next question is, if you're a supernaturalist, then, then you believe that God exists or that gods exist. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, religious beliefs that say that more than one God exists. Okay, for example, Mormons believe that there are many, many gods. Hindus believe there are many, many gods. The ancient Greeks and Romans believed there were many, many gods, right? Uh, Zeus and Athena and Venus. And, oh, these were all Mars. These were all gods of fertility or warfare or whatever it might be. So the belief in many gods is not uncommon in human history. It's now pretty uncommon. Um, now there are three main monotheistic religions. Mono meaning one, theist is the Greek word for God. So they're, uh, and could y'all say what they are? Monotheistic. So Christianity's one. What would be another monotheistic religion that believes there's only one God? Islam would be one. And Judaism, there you go. So those are the three. There's some other smaller ones, but... Absolutely, there's water in that pitcher right behind you, and there's coffee made, and there's all the donuts you could ever possibly eat. So... Uh, polytheists. Poly yeah, yeah. So, so there are people who would still cling to polytheism. Now they're in the supernatural camp, so that's good. But they're polytheistic. So, I also believe polytheistic belief is absurd, for the same reason. Well, for different reasons. But um, I kind of joke. Um, if, if any of you, you know, you go home at the end of the night and you have a television and a remote control, you know, someone has to decide who's going to watch what on TV, right? So I always joke, if there's more than one God, who's, who's, who decides what to watch on TV, right? I mean, because if, and whoever decides is really the one God, and then he's really the true God, you know? So um, anyway, I mean, you can't, have, you can't have more than one God, because then whichever was the greater of the two would be God. Because when we talk about God, we're talking about the greatest possible being. There can be nothing greater than God when we talk about God. So it's not just that he's powerful and mighty and timeless and immaterial and those things. He's the most of all those things, you know. Um, so polytheism is, I think, also uh, it's a cultic mindset in the sense of, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a pagan mindset. You know, pagan, pagans were not people who had too little religion. They were people who had too much religion. Because they looked for God in the thunderbolt, and they looked for God in the field, and they looked for a God when you had babies, and they looked for God that, you know, there's a God for everything. Um, rather than understanding that there is only one God, there can only be one God, anything else just doesn't make any sense. Because you can't have competing gods. Okay, so if we're, if we're supernaturalists and we're monotheists, then the question is, well, which of those main three revelations do we, do we believe? Because the Jews have a revelation, the Christians have a revelation, and the Mu Muslims, Islam, has revelation. They all claim to be from God. And you probably know that, of course, the Jewish revelation and Christian revelation overlap, to put it simply. So if we just look at the Bible, okay, 
Um, what is the Bible? So I, I heard this actually just the other day. There, there are 66 books in the Bible. 66, okay. Um, now the Catholic Bible has a few more because they have some books in the middle, but we can talk about that another day. But um, this is what we call the Old Testament. Or you might call this the Jewish scriptures. Jewish scriptures. Yep. I hear about that. So in, in, your, in your page, it's 877. That's when the New Testament begins. 877? Yep. And so it's about two-thirds of the way through, Melissa. It's about, you see how much of, the, of this is that Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Okay. So, um, and we'll talk all about the New Testament next week, but, or next time we meet. But, um, so the Jewish scriptures in our Old Testament are the same. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we, what, what the, the, the Hebrews, and I tend to use the word Hebrew or Israelite to describe the Jewish people, um, what the Hebrews reject is, is what comes next. It's the New Testament. So we believe these are also now words from God, that God has revealed and given us these words. And we'll talk about how God did that later, but um, we believe this is also the word of God. Now, Islam is a totally different thing. So, um, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but basically the belief is that Muhammad is illiterate. He did not have, he was not reading the Bible. But he, everything in the Quran is directly, it, it is written through Muhammad. The author of the Quran is really said to be Allah or God, okay? Um, and Muhammad is just his messenger, just his prophetic messenger. Um, whereas our understanding of scripture is really pretty different. Um, you know, just in the Gospels alone in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we believe these are the, the authors of the of those gospels and they're inspired by God but they're not mere scribes you know they're not just hearing words in their ear and then writing it down they were writing just like you would write a letter to somebody or just like you would write an account of something that happened yesterday but God worked through that person in that writing to give us this so it's a, it's a it's a a bit of a different understanding of inspiration or the breathing out of God's word um, but again, so remember, we're starting out with supernaturalism, and then we're getting rid of polytheism, we're down to monotheism, and then we're down to Israelite, Jewish religion, or Christianity, which includes the New Testament, or Islam. You know, Islam comes 600 years later and says things about Christ that disagree with the New Testament, the most famous of which would be that Islam says that Jesus never died. That's the easiest, quickest example. We say Jesus died on a cross. They say he never went to the cross. He never died on a cross. One of those things is true, and one of them is false. So both of both Islam and Christianity cannot be true. It, you know, something has to give. Um, and, of course, that's true for any truth claim. That can be true, or that can be true, but they can't both be true. And so I reject totally the idea that all religions are paths to the same God. Um, no, that's not true. They can't, they can't be true because that one says things about my God and I say things about that God. They can't both be true, right? It's like saying, you know, a bell shirt is green and black when it's clearly blue plaid. They, one, of, one of those things has to be true. They could both be false. That's a possibility. Christianity can be false and Islam can be false. But they can't both be true. One can be true, one can be false, they can both be false, 
but they can't both be true. So the idea of all religions leading to the same God, I totally reject that, 100%. It, it, it doesn't even make logical sense. So if you're committed to truth, if you're committed to logic, you have to reject that. I understand why people say that, but it, it's just as absurd as polytheism or naturalism, <laughs> you know? So, um, okay, so what we believe then, what Christians are really committed to then, is that the scriptures are the supernatural revelation of the one and only true God. So this is a, this is a pretty radical claim, if you really think about it. We are claiming that God, the only God, that has ever existed and ever will exist, that created everything that there is, he has specifically revealed things in this book that reveal who he is and how he relates to us and how we relate to him. And you can't find that anywhere else, okay? That's why the Bible is so important. That's why we need to know what's in it. Um, that's why we need to study it and so forth. So now let me say this. Um, God has revealed himself to us in other ways too, but I would say mainly in nature, okay? So, for example, anybody can wake up and look around and see the birds chirping and the bees flying and the, the trees growing, and, and you trace that back, and you, like we've already said, you come to a supernatural worldview. You come to believe that God exists just based on the fact that anything exists and it had to have a immaterial uh, timeless creator of all things, okay? So I do believe that even if people never get a Bible, they can still know that God exists, certainly, with certainty. That's my, my example. Right? Yeah, exactly. So um, um, Abel grew up in communist Cuba, where all religion was illegal. So, so he had no opportunity for instruction, the kind of instruction we're having right now, right? Yeah, so, yeah but that's yeah. the same way, I don't know how, but you, I believe it's normal to feel God is there. Right. I mean, he always with you, you know, things you see, things happen to you, like, right. you, like my example, I was in the, I was on service in Africa, mm -hmm. in the, in the world, mm. and many things happen, that's, that's why I still alive in him. Mm -hmm. And that point of time, maybe some 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 day I think ah oh, I got a good luck. Mm. But at the same time I said, well, God have to be in that that moment with me yeah. because it's something it's not normal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I do think God continues to intervene in creation. Okay, I do. So I I do believe that. Um, now the way He intervenes, I I argue with some people about that. But that's a topic for another day. But I do believe that God is present with us on a daily basis and that we would should have our eyes open to how God does that. Um, I bet you as well that I could very quickly convince both of you that you know that God exists as well because you know what's right and wrong, right? And so part of, part of the way that God is revealed to everybody, even without the Bible, is that we're made in God's image. So when we look at Genesis uh, when he when God creates man in the very first chapter of the Bible, he says, "Let us make man, humankind, in our own image," and that means that we have personality. It means that we know right from wrong. It means we 
We, and, and later God says in the Bible that his law is written on our hearts. So I could go to, I could fly to Czechoslovakia, and then I could get on a plane and go to China, and then I could go to Russia, and then Japan. And anybody I talk to knows that God exists because they all have the, the law of God written on their heart, and they're all made in the image of God. That is our fundamental view of man. Even, so. even when you have like three, four years old, you know what Absolutely. Absolutely. You can see the kid when he's doing something wrong. And, and you, you know, and children are liars. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, oh my gosh. They do something wrong and then they lie about it, you know? And because they know it's wrong and they know they'll get in trouble. So they lie and they know that's wrong too. That one, yeah. You know, so... So no, no human being can escape God's revelation. All that they can do is suppress it. They push God away. They push God away. They push God away. Now, that's a very scary place to be. It's actually a lot less scary than saying, God, I know that you exist, and I know that you're a judge of me. And that's kind of scary. But what, what, when we talk about Jesus in the New Testament and the gospel, what we're going to see is that the prevailing goodness of God's work in the world far outweighs the judgment of God. If you accept Christ, okay. So, so what I, what I, what I mean when I say that God reveals Himself more than the Bible, we know that God exists because nature exists at all, and God has to exist, and we know that He exists because He's the law is written on our heart, and that we're made in God's image. That's why we're better than dogs. That's why we're better than whales. You know, that's the difference between human beings and every other part of nature, right? Dogs are great. I don't think we should torture dogs or kill dogs or anything like that. I have a dog, but he's not a human being. And they're not worth what a human being is worth, okay? Because we're made in God's image and only human beings are made in God's image. Okay, um, so when we talk about the Bible then, you know, I'm, I really believe that this is God's revelation to us. And it's the only God that has ever existed. And I think the Bible attests to that fact very clearly again and again and again because God is always coming up against people who say no you're not the true God I have the true God and they put God to the test and they lose every time um, so um, any any questions about about that so far I'm looking at my notes here to see if I I wrote I, I um, missed something okay the Old Testament has 39 books, okay? Now I'm going to see if y'all are any good at math. What is, what is 3 times 9? 27, very good. There are 27 books in the New Testament. In the New Testament. In the New Testament. 27 books. Yeah. So 39 in the Old, 3 times 9 is 27. So see? So, so that adds, 60, adds up to 66. Now that's not like a divine... Uh, Evidence of God exists or anything. It 20, just, 26 in the New Testament? 20, 27. 27. Yeah, so 39 and 27, okay? And these books are different. This is very important to understand about the Bible. They, they have different authors. They're written, some cases, centuries apart from each other, okay? Um, some of them are different genres, okay? So do you know what I mean when I say the word genre? Uh, like if you go to the movie, well, they don't have movie. Uh, if you go to Netflix, you can search by genre, right? Horror movie, drama, comedy, sitcom, etc., yes. etc. Et the Bible has genres too. 
It's got about four main genres. There's historical narrative that tells the story of what took place in history because Christianity is a historical religion. Right? It's not just a philosophy. It's not Buddhism or something. That's it, The history of Buddhism doesn't matter, but the history matters every, to, to us very much, right? So, so there's a lot of historical narrative. Um, there's prophecy. So that is God speaking to men. Uh, I'm trying to think if there are prophetesses uh, that were not judged by God. I can't remember. But anyway, there, there's um, God speaking to people and giving his word to people. And then those people would have a word to the nation of Israel. Okay. Um, we would, I would argue that Jesus is the last. He, he, was, he was a prophet. He was more than a prophet. But he was also a prophet. He was because he was speaking the word of God. So a prophet is someone who speaks the word of God. It's not really that they're predicting the future. They might predict the future, but sometimes they also say things like, "If you keep doing this, this is going to happen." But then the people repent, so God doesn't bring that thing to happen. Um, so prophecy and prophecy is also biblical prophecy is. Um, often dual, it, it has double meaning. So, for example, you might have a prophecy that predicts the birth of a child in a certain way. And it really means immediately a child is going to be born in a certain way. But later we can look back on it and see that it also points to the way that Jesus would be born. You know, or it might mean one thing in the Old Testament immediately, but then we see later, oh, that actually was a reference to Christ. So, so some prophecy deals with Israel in the historical time, and some of it points to Christ. So we have historical, we have prophetic, then there's wisdom literature. So this is, this is literature that is sort of given us surely that we would grow in wisdom and God's wisdom. Proverbs. Proverbs is the great book of wisdom literature. Yeah. Um, the Psalms is kind of like wisdom literature. The Psalms is more, it's, it's almost like um, a, a hymn book, really. The Psalms are the prayer book of the church. When Jesus went to pray, I think he prayed the Psalms. And when he was on the, Christ, on the, on the cross, he prayed Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he said, I am the good shepherd... He's quoting Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So there's no doubt that Jesus, of course, Jesus is God, so he, he knew all of the words of God. But there's no doubt that the Psalms are also his, his prayer book and the early church's hymn book. There are still Christians today who say we should only sing the Psalms. You know, so um, I don't go quite that far. You've been in our worship service and we sing hymns and uh, but hymn, good hymns are based on scripture. They're not their own thing. And that's one of my issues with some more contemporary churches is that the, the singing is often about us. You know, it's often about how we feel about God. And a good hymn is about what God has done for us. And that's a, that's a different thing. Um, often say, you know, it doesn't matter how I feel about God. That's irrelevant. Um, what matters is what God has done for me. So... Okay, so, uh, and then the fourth would be apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic, that is literature that looks at, Revelation would be the best example in the New Testament. 
So it's the very last book of the Bible. But like the book of um, Ezekiel, uh, which is one of the prophets, it's also a prophet, but it's a, there's a lot of apocalyptic language in the book of Ezekiel. Um, and, uh, and in Daniel, there is apocalyptic literature as well. Daniel's another prophet, and there is historical narrative. So sometimes you have books that are historical narrative, and they're, and they're prophetic, and they're apocalyptic. That, that can happen. But it's, here, here's, I'm, I'm pointing out the different genres because you would not take the standard of one genre and apply it to another. Okay? So, for example, let's say you go into Barnes & Noble and you're in the fiction section, and you get a book, and it's a, it's a fictional account of, you know, life in Texas in the 1820s. Um, you wouldn't take that book and apply the standard of truth to that that you would a book about the Alamo, right? I mean, one is fiction, one is nonfiction. And so in the Bible, you wouldn't take a book that is wisdom literature and apply the same standard that you would of historical narrative. For example, in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the vine and you, and you are uh, the fruit of the vine or something like that. Um, I can never remember scripture offhand, but, but that doesn't mean that Jesus literally is a plant, right? Okay. And, and he says, I am the door or I am the gate of the sheep. That doesn't mean he's a gate. Um, so certainly there are ways we can think in parable, right? In story. Yeah. And, um, and, and so some wisdom literature and apocalyptic literature. So, you know, so I'll, I'll give one example right away that, that, that is going to get me in trouble with some people, which is the book of Jonah. Okay. Jonah, 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 it's a small book in the old Testament. He's a prophet. It's a story of a man who's called by God to go and preach repentance to the town of Nineveh. And Nineveh was full of 200,000 sinful people. And God says, J Jonah, go to, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. And so he gets on a boat, a uh, ship, to, to, to go the other way from Nineveh. And then he brings a curse, basically, on the ship. And the people find out about it. You've been on a ship before. Very superstitious people sometimes, yes, you know? Um, so they find out, they kick Jonah off the boat. He ends up in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, okay? Now, did a real person named Jonah really live and really end up in the belly of a big fish, not a whale, because whales are mammals, but anyway, a big fish for three days and three nights and live to tell about it, get spit out upon the land? He ends up going to Nineveh and preaches repentance, and then all 200,000 people repent, and uh, and then and then Jonah's mad that God doesn't destroy Nineveh. It's it, there's a lot of humor in the story. From my point of view, Jonah is a parable. That's how I understand Jonah. Now, some people would say I'm a I'm a heretic who deserves to go to hell because I don't believe Jonah was a real person who went on a real boat and ended up in the fish for three days and three nights. And they say that because Jesus himself references the sign of Jonah, which is. See the, the, And I do believe the story of Jonah looks at the resurrection. See, there's another example of prophecy dealing with one thing, but it actually looks towards resurrection. Because now we think of Christ being in the tomb for three days and then being resurrected, spit out, if you will, conquering death in, into life. So the sign of Jonah is very important to Jesus. Jonah is very important to Jesus. I don't want to minimize that, but my understanding of that particular story 
is that it's in the genre of a parable, right? It's a, it, it, it's not historical narrative. That doesn't make it any less true that we should follow the will of God, that we should proclaim repentance, that God will judge us if we don't obey him, etc., etc. But that's how I understand that particular story. I put it in that genre. I may be wrong. I pray for forgiveness if I am wrong. I don't want to do any damage to God's word, but that's just how I understand that story. Um, so understanding genres is, is very helpful because if we're able to distinguish between different ways of communicating truth, it's helpful. That can take us down a dangerous path to where we, we minimize the Bible, and I don't want to do that. Um, so, I mean, one ex another example would be, um, you know, uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, I believe Adam and Eve were historical persons. I have to believe that, I believe, because the New Testament indicates that Adam and Eve were real persons. Um, I also believe, and this would get me in trouble with a lot of people too, that the universe is 14 billion years old, okay? Some people think the universe is 6,000 or 10,000 years old. Those people are not my enemies. I don't have any problem with it. I understand why they believe that, but I think there's sufficient evidence and no overarching convincing reason that we can't believe the universe is 14 billion years old. Um, so I believe that the universe is old and I believe in Adam and Eve. Um, so I believe that God has progressively acted in creation um, to bring about the six days or the six eras of creation. And when the earth was ready, when it was formed and cool and there was vegetation and animals to support human beings, I believe God created Adam and Eve. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there is some interesting evidence. There's, you may have heard of... Uh, uh, and I, I'm not a science guy at all, but um, mitochondrial Eve, have you ever heard of that? So mitochondrial Eve means that when you trace back, um, you know, the mitochondrial genome, it goes back to one woman. And chromosomal Adam, uh, they found chromosomal Adam as well. It's kind of the same idea, but anyway, scientists and non-believers have a way around that, but it's, it's just interesting. So, but I think, so I think that I'm able, I, I, well, I would like to think that I can evaluate different accounts and, and, and know how to deal with it. I don't think you can read the New Testament and not have Adam and Eve be real historical persons. Yeah. We believe, or Christian believe, in the New Testament, like the Old Testament, mm -hmm. the law. Mm -hmm. Why, to me, why, why the Old Testament, Testament lose little rule or the words come out of the New Testament, the New Testament looks like a more faithful and law. Yeah. And the Old Testament got something to me, it's like a, I don't think I don't believe God can do that to, ah, okay. to his sons, you know, to his people. You know? Yeah, yeah. So so it's often said like in the Old Testament God is yeah, very um full of judgment or vengeance or something judgment. like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the New Testament is full of grace and mercy. Well, I would say there's a lot of grace and mercy in the Old Testament too. And I would say there's a lot of judgment in the New Testament. So I, I actually think it's pretty equal. It's, oh, okay. it, it's just that we tend to read certain things. Um, you know, what God requires of his people is 
faithful obedience. And the problem with the, the Israelites have again and again is they're not very faithful and they're not very obedient. Um, that, excuse me, that, that happens a lot. You know, they actually go chasing after other gods or they form idols that, they're, that God explicitly says not to make or they engage in adultery or, um, you know, there's one great prophecy, um, Hosea, where Hosea, where God actually compares Israel to a prostitute. You know, you've been whoring out yourself to other gods. And here I am, a faithful husband to you, and you treat me like a prostitute, you know. And uh, very strong words of condemnation, but that's what Israel was doing. Um, so <clears throat> it's the same God. I, I want to I make that point clear, too. A lot of people think, well, I've even heard Christians say, well, that's the different God in the Old Testament. No, it's the same God. You know, God requires the same across all time from all people. His demand is the exact same for everybody. Um, and actually, that demand is perfection, if you can believe it. Um, what, what Christians believe is that in Christ, who was the perfect man, because he was also God, he has fulfilled that perfection. And so when we are baptized, we are brought into the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So when we need perfection, we have it in Christ, because we definitely don't have it in ourselves. But, um, okay, well, I've got to get going into the actual Old Testament. I haven't done that quite yet. Um, I've, 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 I've kind of hinted at some of this, but let's just turn to Genesis 1. Let's just turn to the very, very first page of the Bible. And um, let me just check something. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. We, well, you know, obviously we're not going to be able to have time to read a lot, but... Um, um, yeah, so Genesis 1, the very first page of the Bible. And, um, you know, I read an article the other day. It said 27 controversial things about the first sentence of the Bible. It was really fascinating. But in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless, a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. I actually don't like that translation very much, but um, it's some of the Hebrew is, because is, the Old Testament was written in the language of Hebrew, okay? The, the, that's the Hebrew language. So um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That would be a, maybe another way that you could say that same sentence, in the beginning. So when we talk about the beginning, we're talking about before time, matter, energy or space existed remember we talked before about creation from nothing we can't even conceive of nothing okay but that's what this that's a radical claim it's a radical claim that there was nothing and then there was something why because of god so god stands against and in a certain sense for all of nature and all of creation so god created the heavens and the earth so if anyone ever asks you if you're a creationist I would say, heck yeah, I'm a creationist. What's the alternative? Now, I'm, I'm what you call an old earth creationist rather than a young earth creationist. So that's a debate Christians have um, among themselves. But clearly I'm a creationist because I believe God created. What's the alternative? <laughs> it came into being, you know, someone made this mug. It didn't just pop into being, right? Uh, someone 
got the ceramic and crafted it and shaped it and painted it and glazed it and blah, blah, blah. So, okay. Anyway, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the story of creation then goes through the, the six days of creation. And on the sixth day, if you jump to uh, verse 26, we've talked about this a little already, so I'm going to go very fast. Verse 26, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So man is then set out to be the, the caretaker of creation, the steward of creation. He's supposed to use it, right? We eat the vegetables, we kill the meat, et cetera, et cetera. But man is definitely given, um, he is given stewardship over, over all of creation. Um, and so here you have then, uh, later we get names for these two people, Adam and Eve, and they are in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is a wonderful place full of vegetation and livestock and all kinds of good stuff. Um, and does anyone know what happens next then? With Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply for sure. Very good, very good. But then they're in the garden and there's one tree. Of the, how you call the fruit? Yeah, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of the knowledge. Yeah. So they don't exactly so God says you can eat any tree in this garden right but you cannot eat from this tree and by the way the Bible never says it's an apple oh, yeah. <laughs> okay so it's just the tree of knowledge of good and evil think about that for a second they had no knowledge of good and evil think about it now we have it we know it's good and bad right but they had no knowledge of good and evil before until they ate from this tree it's a remarkable thing to think about and that is what made them want to be like God, right? So in Genesis 3, and I'm going very fast, but Genesis 3, they um, basically the serpent comes to them and the serpent says, hey, did God really say? Okay, so just if you look at the first two verses of Genesis 3, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. All right, just a couple quick points. The devil will always tempt you by saying, did God really say? Even in the church, if this happens all the time. People say, did God really say? So how do you know what God said? This is how you know what God said, okay? So Lutherans are, um, we advocate that the scripture alone is the way that we know what God has said and what God wants. That's where we're different from Roman Catholics who also have a tradition. And so the Pope can speak for God or, or Pentecostals speak in tongues and they think they're hearing special words from God. And we, we would say no to each of those, that those are extra biblical. They're more than biblical revelations from God. So anytime anybody comes, even in the name of Jesus, and they say, did God really say, 
you should think about Genesis 3. And the serpent comes and says, did God really say it? Now notice what Eve says. She says, oh yeah, that's right. She says, um, she quotes from 2.17, when God says to, to them, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall die. Now what does she say? You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it. Did God say anything about touching it? No. no. So the first sin of man is not eating the fruit. It happened before that. It's when she says, God said we can't eat it, we can't even touch it. No, that isn't what God said. You can touch it. God never said anything about touching it. She added that law to God's commandment. Okay, It's kind of like if you tell your son, Lucas, right, do not eat the cookies in the kitchen. And he says to himself, okay, if I don't go into the kitchen, I won't want to eat the cookie. And then he says, but if I go into the hall, I might want to go into the kitchen, and then I might eat the cookie. So I'm going to make another rule. I'm not going to go into the hall. But if I go into the den, I might want to go into the hall. If I go into the hall, I might want to go into the kitchen. If I go into the kitchen, I might want to eat the cookie. So I'm going to make another rule. I'm not going to go into the den. You know, so you make law of law to, to keep yourself from doing the one thing that you don't have enough self-control not to do. So that's what she seems to be doing. Oh, yeah, God said, no, I can't even touch it. I can't even touch it because then I might want to eat it. I'm going to have to go very fast. So there's a lot more that we could so We could spend all morning just on Genesis 3. But let's just say what happens is that this is when man falls into sin. Man had an opportunity to obey God, and man doesn't obey God. So now man eats of the tree of knowledge. He knows the difference between good and evil. And then God distributes curses. But let me read this is a very important verse, verse 15 in chapter 3. Verse 15 of chapter 3. Yeah, verse 15. So this is God speaking, and he says this to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, that is her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Okay, if you ever been around a, a snake before, okay, if you strike the head, that's, that's better than them striking your heel, yes, right? Okay, because if you get the head, they're dead, all right? Um, you ever see snakes on the, on the job where you are? Are you outside? Uh, sometimes we go outside, like um, Midland, Texas. Oh, okay. We work on the reef, mm -hmm. and we see rattlesnake every day around there. Every yep. single day. So you want to strike the head, right? Oh, yes. Kill the snake. This is what's called the Proto-Evangelion, proto if I said that right. That is the first gospel. This is the first gospel. Because look at what God is saying. God is saying that, the, that there is going to be enmity between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the snake. Now, the, the snake is not just a snake. It's the devil. Okay. Yeah. So it's the forces of evil coming to Eve with the temptation. And what God is saying is that Christ, ultimately, we believe this is looking ahead to Christ. Christ is going to resist the devil. And he's going to kill the head of the devil. Of the devil. Okay, and, and, and if you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, yes. the, okay, the very beginning when he's in the garden in temptation, there's the scene where there's a snake in the garden 
And he takes his heel and he crushes the head of the serpent. That's what this is. It's a reference to Genesis 3.15. So it's Christ right. crushing the work, crushing the head of the, of the servant. So some things in that movie, you know, they're artistic interpretations or whatever to, ex, ex, to look at other texts. And that would be one of them. So that, that it's three, Genesis 3.15. So that's called the, the first gospel. By the way, do you like the movie? I do like the movie. Actually, I like it a lot. Um, you know, it's it's very Roman Catholic in some ways. Yes, well, this guy, Mel Gibson, yeah. He's real yes. Roman Catholic, right? Very, very... I mean, he's the, like, the right hand of the Roman Catholic. Yes, he's yes. Yeah, he's like pre-Vatican II, right, I think. Uh, Latin-only mass and things like that. Yeah, very very conservative Roman Catholic, actually. So, But I, I think it is a good movie. Uh, I mean, it doesn't talk much about the resurrection, but uh, I do think it's a good movie. Okay, now from the fall, we're going to go really fast now. From the fall, the next big event in Genesis is the flood. Okay, so, so after the fall, men are wicked, and they're doing all kinds of wickedness. And God says, I'm going to judge the earth with a flood. I'm going to kill everybody. But he does save Noah and Noah's three sons and all of their wives. So there are eight people who are, you know the story of Noah's ark? Yes, I got okay. that. Okay, so they get on the ark. Two of every kind, and so um, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and um, all of the earth is destroyed except for these eight people. Now, um, the only problem is that within those eight people was still rebellion against God. And um, what happens to, to Noah after he gets off the boat? He becomes a drunk. All right, there's a scene where he's drunk. And his daughter sees his nakedness, and, and his daughter-in-law, and they laugh at him. So there's this whole conflict that immediately erupts. So as soon as the flood is over and all the wicked people are dead, we still have sin. People still choose sin over God. Um, but, you know, the flood is another one of those historical events I think we would have to affirm to some degree. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but... Um, I don't think it's just a metaphor or a parable. That's one of those events where I think absolutely a, a flood took place. Yeah. Now, could it? You know, some people say it's a regional flood. Some people say it's all over the world. Well, I read something about that. You say a lot of cultures around the world you got in the history they talk right. the flood too. Right. So here's what's interesting. Uh, you can look at that two ways. You could say every culture has a flood narrative. This is just our culture's flood narrative. Or you could say there really was a flood, so every culture is going to tell the story about this flood. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it depends on what angle you want to come from. So I tend to be of the mindset that every culture that ever existed has the descendants of Noah has told the story of the worldwide flood. And so every culture has the story of the flood. Um, Okay, but so you have the flood, and that's God's judgment against sin. Okay. And, and, and by the way, I want to just say, Genesis 1 to 11 is almost like its own thing. And, and that's really important for us moving ahead, because Genesis 1 to 11 tells three or four critical stories, and, and they're going to they're gonna really pave the way for the rest of the Bible. And so there's really nothing else in the Bible like Genesis 1 to 11. It covers a lot of ground, and, and, and I'll explain why in just a moment. So you have the flood, God's judgment against sin. Then you have, because the people are still wicked, then you have the story in Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel. 
Okay, you know what a babbler does? A babble, blah, 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 right? Okay, so it's called the Tower of Babel because after the Tower of Babel, people speak in languages and they don't understand, okay? What, what happens in Genesis 11? It's simple. The people on earth all spoke one language, okay? And they said, we're going to build a tower up to heaven, okay? We're going to be like God. See, it's just like in the Garden of Eden all over again. We're going to be like God. We're going to have the same knowledge that God has, the knowledge of good and evil. In the Garden, it was the knowledge of good and evil, right? In Genesis 11, it's similar. We want to be like God. We want to be in heaven too. So let's build a huge tower up and up and up and up and up and up all the way to heaven. And in Genesis 11:6, God says, okay. You want to build a tower? I'm going to, nothing will be impossible for you. You can build that tower all day long. I'm going to, I mean, for all we know, God gave them the strength and the, and the clay and the kilns and everything. You know, they could build this tower high and higher and higher. And the higher they built it, the more their judgment, the more their judgment, because they were, instead of being content with what God had given them, they said, no, we want to be like God. See, that is always the problem of man. He always wants to be like God. He's never content with what God has given him. It's a sin. Yeah, absolutely. So, so God lets them build this tower. And then eventually God sticks his little, his little pinky nail, you know, and he says, just like that on the tower, and there goes the tower. So see, the great things that man wants to build, God could destroy like that. Without any, just a, just a breath of his air, you know, just, just, just the, the air of his breath. There it goes. The punishment was that now all the people would not speak the same language. So Abel and I, we communicate well, but you're not speaking your native language, you know. And shame on me, I've never learned Spanish, right? Let me, let me, let me tell you something. They, they tend to, English was really difficult for yeah, me. Yeah. It's still difficult for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard when not everybody speaks the same language. That's right, that's I'm right. I'm that because I'm in that situation. That's right. And this is, so this was the punishment that God, yeah. you know, gave us was that we don't understand each other. And when you're, a, when you're in a foreign land, you realize how horrible it is that human beings can't talk to each other, right? Or even if you have a, you speak the same language, but you, I mean, I speak English to people, but I can still offend them by saying something in English that they don't understand, like a colloquialism, you know, like a, a local expression, or I'm teasing somebody or something. So from hence, from the Tower of Babel, man is going to be now at enmity with each other over language. Now this foreshadows the day of Pentecost, which we'll get to later, but basically Pentecost, in, in, as recorded in the New Testament, is when the Holy Spirit comes, and what we see is people from all over the world are in Jer Jerusalem, and they're speaking their own language, but now everyone understands. So God does provide a, a way of, you know, of, of, of uh, you know, God does provide an answer to the Tower of Babel, okay? Okay, so Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. After that, the people are scattered. Genesis 12 is the beginning of something totally new, okay? And that's when God calls Abram, soon to be called Abraham, into a covenant with him, and he makes a promise with Abraham that Abraham will be the father of many nations. So let me just review, though, Genesis 1 to 11, because it's really important to understand. This is, this is a question people will often ask. They'll often basically say, well, look, if God is so great or God is so, um, you know, wise or powerful, why, you know, why can't he just make the world better? 
The answer is in Genesis 1 to 11. First of all, he did make it better. But we would rather be like God and eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because I guarantee you, if we did the Garden of Eden over and over and over, it was like a, a videotape, you could rewind it and watch it again and again with different people. Not Adam and Eve, it'd be Carolyn and Steve. They do the same thing. I believe human beings coming natural the same. Right. It's pretty hard to don't touch it. Somebody tell you, don't touch that. Right. All you want to do is touch it, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You become obsessed, really, and uh, you know. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so first of all, the answer is God did make it better, but we fell into sin. And then, um, every and then, if you say, well, if we had a second chance, you did after the flood. See. And, and, and so you, so men always want to say, well, if only God this, we, we, could, we could get it right if we just... And, and really, if you think about the 20th century with communism and scientific rationalism and the Enlightenment and all these theories about how to create a perfect world, they all killed millions of people. Yes. So, so they failed miserably in creating a better world. So man is always telling himself, oh, well, if only this, we could have a better world. If only that, we could have a better world. Have you not read Genesis 1 to 11? Man had opportunity again and again, and he fails every single time. He would rather have wickedness in the world than true service of God. So, you know, so I I think that Genesis 1 to 11 is there. This is my own thing. So that we would never have an excuse. Man could never say that I would have done it right if only. See, man does not man man is not, man doesn't get to say that to God. When we die and stand before God, and we all will, we're not going to have any excuse. We're not going to be able to say, "Well, God, if only you had given me better parents. Well, God, if only you had given me better circumstances. Well, God, if only if you had given me more money." You know, I promise you that there are people in heaven right now who had terrible parents, terrible circumstances, no money, died with nothing. Okay, and I'm not saying that that should be the norm. Or anything like that. I'm just saying that, um, and I'm not even saying that there aren't people who are real victims of real violence and real struggle, and we should wrap our arms around those people and help them every way we can. Um, what I am saying is that, generally speaking, humanity at large, if you believe this is the supernatural revelation of the one true God, has no excuse. He does not get to say, oh, if only God had done this, we would have done it better. If only communism, I, I had a conversation on Thursday with a guy who's a socialist. And, um, and he said, look, we, yeah, I understand that every time you try it this way, it fails. I understand. But the next time we do it, we're going to get it right. See, no, we're not going to get it right. We're not going to get it right with the right government. We're not going to get it right with the right economic system. We're not going to get it right with the right whatever. I believe nothing's right. I mean, yeah. nothing can be perfect. Nothing can be perfect. At best, we can create a society full of Christians who actually want to honor and serve their God and repent of their sin and, and seek to worship God. And that won't create a perfect society, but it can create a pretty good one. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, it can create a better one than the alternative. But we don't, we, we don't believe for that reason. But a byproduct of our belief and faith in God is that we actually can produce a better world than, than, than the competition, if you will. There's no competition to God, but you get what I'm saying. Okay, so I think Genesis 1 to 11 and those three stories, creation and fall, I put those together, 
the flood, and the Tower of Babel, I believe that those three stories are told in part because they happened. I'm not saying they didn't happen, but they're told so that man could never say, if only God did it this way, we could have had the result we wanted. I say to that, no, no. We could replay it again and again, and we'd have the same thing. So there's no excuse. There's no excuse. Okay, now Genesis 12. And, and basically what I'm going to do now in the next 10 minutes or so is I'm going to cover Genesis 12 until the end of the Old Testament in 10 minutes. That's ridiculous and absurd and insane and crazy, okay? And, 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 and there's so much in here, and it's going to take you the rest of your life to learn. It's going to take me the rest of my life to learn too. So I'm not saying it's comprehensive even at all. But I want you to have the big picture of the big historical narrative that because you can't understand the New Testament without it. So what we have then is the calling of Abram. God comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And they make a covenant. And basically through then Abraham's son and his sons, the, the, the nation of Israel, the people of the Hebrew people um, are, are going to come into being. And out of that people is going to come Christ. Because okay, Christ was a, a Jew. He was a Hebrew. He was of the tribe of Judah. Okay? So let me go back, though. So now, Abram, he had a wife named Sarah, and Abram was very old already when, this, when God came to, to Abram and said this. They tried, they couldn't have a baby. They tried to have a baby. It didn't work. So they tried to circumvent the process by having Abram, or Abraham, I'll call him now, um, well, lie with Hagar, who is Sarah's maid. And they have a son named Ishmael. Well, God says, that is not the promise I made. I didn't say that you could be the father of many nations through Hagar. I said it was through Sarah. And now many years are going by and they're not having children and they're getting old. You know, the Bible tells us that they eventually have a child who's <laughs> named uh, Isaac when they're 100 years old. So, you know, okay. Eventually, Hagar and Ishmael uh, are banished, and um, these, this creates problems later. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, you might you might be you might wonder: Islam traces its roots back to Abraham too. Yes, but it's through Ishmael, so it's not through Isaac. It's through Ishmael. It's through the it's through the union of Abraham and Hagar that produced Ishmael, who are banished. So they get to Abraham. Yeah, so they get to Abraham through Ishmael, not, not through Isaac. Um, so big, big difference, big difference. Because the promise of God is not through Ishmael and Hagar, it's through Sarah. So, so they have a son named Isaac, and then there's a story uh, where Abraham, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. They waited all these years to have Isaac. They finally have Isaac. Isaac is maybe 15 years old or so. They go up to the mountain. There's all of this Christocentric symmetry where, um, anyway, and, and, and we have to go so fast, I just can't tell the story. But just as Abraham is going to kill Isaac, an angel steps in and says, wait, stop, okay, we, you're, you're our man, okay? We, we understand that you believe that God has spoken, you respond when God speaks, and you are obedient to God. And, and so the, the life of Isaac is spared at the last moment, and then there is a ram caught in a in a bed of thorns and that is what is sacrificed instead now see that's the image of christ christ who had a crown of thorns upon his head is the sacrifice instead 
so that we could be saved. So, again, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, it, 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 it points to Christ. That's what its job is, okay? Anyway, Isaac survives this <laughs> sacrifice attempt, and, uh, and then Isaac has two sons named Jacob and Esau. And this is kind of a long story too. But Jacob and Esau, Jacob is uh, looks like his father. Esau, and they're twins. Esau is ruddy complected. That means he had red hair. Probably red hair and freckles. Okay, Esau is born first. So he has all the rights of the firstborn because whoever's born first is like the main guy, you know, the main son, inheritor and all of that. One day Esau, the red-haired one, gets hungry. And, he, and Jacob was a good hunter. So he says to Jacob, make me some stew and I'll give you my birthright. That's a really bad trade, okay? That's like saying, if you give me a dollar, I'll give you my Maserati, okay? Um, so sure enough, Jacob kills something and makes the stew and he gets Esau's birthright. Well, see, God does not like it when you give away the thing that, that he gives to you. Okay, so Esau now is... He's, he's in bad shape. And then, and then later, um, Isaac gives Jacob a blessing that was meant for Esau because Jacob and his mother conspire. They put uh, fur on Jacob's body to make it think that it, he's Esau because uh, Isaac was blind. Anyway, there's a lot of humor in these stories, um, but I believe that they're true as well. So Jacob, the second born, not Esau, the firstborn, Jacob, the second born, gets all of the blessings of the firstborn. And now the lineage is from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Okay. Jacob has more than one wife, kind of foolishly, and he has 12 sons. And the 12 number now becomes very important because we uh, eventually that's going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And when Jesus calls 12 disciples, he's saying to the world, this is the new 12 tribes of Israel, in, in essence. But Jacob has 12 sons with different women, so there's jealousy among them. And the youngest son is named Joseph, okay? Have you, if you've ever heard of the Broadway musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, it's kind of old now. Uh, but anyway, it tells the story of Joseph. Joseph was the youngest. Jacob loved him the most. And he gave him a, 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 a color, many-colored coat or tunic. And uh, his brothers are jealous of him in part because Joseph has the ability to interpret dreams. And he interprets some dreams against his brothers. Well, well they don't like this, so they're going to kill him. So they throw him into a pit. They leave him for dead. So um, eventually he gets bought into slavery and he ends up in Egypt. And by the way, if you have Netflix, you can watch The Prince of Egypt. It's really a good Disney movie, and it tells the story of Moses and kind of begins here, okay? Begins really with Exodus. But the background is that Jacob ends up then in Egypt, and because he can interpret dreams, he ends up in the Pharaoh's court. He ends up one of the most powerful people in the whole nation of Egypt. Meanwhile, his brothers and his father, Jacob, think he's dead. So... Um, they go and say their father, he's dead, and Jacob rents his clothes and, and mourns the death of J Joseph. Now, what happens is that there is a famine in the land. Joseph knows there's going to be a famine because he can interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. There's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of want. 
Okay? So the Egyptians, during the seven years of plenty, they store up their grain. So in the seven years of want, they still have food. And they have lots and lots and lots of extra food. The rest of the world had no idea this was coming because Joseph wasn't there to interpret dreams for them. So what happens is the 11 brothers of Joseph hear about then this uh, famine, or they hear about there being food in Egypt. So they go to Egypt to ask for food when they're hungry. And sure enough, guess who they run into? Their brother that they tried to kill. Uh, that actually, they, they thought that they had killed. They don't recognize him at first, but eventually they're reconciled. And Joseph says very famously in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that is the single, among the single greatest answers to the question of why evil happens. There you go. All th- uh, good, good to all things for those who believe. Uh, yeah. Genesis uh, 50, and I, don't, I can't remember the verse. I think it's maybe 11. Um, but that is one of the great short answers um, of why evil takes place. Uh, you know, I should really remember that verse number. Um, I'll, try to, I'll try to find it afterwards. Um, it might even be in 49. Shucks. Um, okay, but... Um, no, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. Da, 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 da. Um, yeah, verse 20 of 50. Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So that's Genesis 50, 20. 50, 20. Another, another one is in when Jesus heals the man born blind in John. Um, people say, why was this man born blind? Is it because he sinned or his, or his parents sinned? Jesus says it's not that they sinned, it's that the glory of God could be revealed through him. So there are, those are different questions, you know, an, ways of answering that question. But um, eventually, so eventually they're reconciled, and then the 11 stay in Egypt. And there's now the 12 sons of Jacob, they're all in Egypt. And they're all there as welcome guests. Now, fast forward about 450 years, and you have the beginning and now of the book of Exodus. So all of that talk today, and we're only into the second book of the Bible. So I got to go super fast now. Um, so basically, what you have then is that now the Israelites are having lots and lots and lots and lots of babies. And you have these 12 tribes from the 12 sons of Jacob, and they're producing lots of children. Now the Egyptians are sitting here going, huh, there's almost more of them than there is of us. That could be a problem because at this point, they basically turned the Israelites into their workers. Slaves, maybe, but at the very least, workers, you know. And so the Egyptians start to get really nervous about this. Like, oh, there's a lot of them. Um, So eventually, uh, now we have the story of Moses. And uh, Moses grows up through an accident also in the Pharaoh's court, like Joseph. But he has to leave Egypt because he witnesses a murder and he gets compromised. Um, He actually kills an Egyptian. So he has to leave Egypt for 40 years. And then God appears to him, and we see this in the book of Exodus, uh, in a burning bush. You know the story of the burning bush? It's like a bush that looks like it's on fire, but it's not. And so God says aloud, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground because God is speaking now. And basically God says, go back into Egypt and get my people out of there, you know. I still have a covenant to fulfill with Abraham, remember? 
father of many nations and all that. So go in, get my people, get them out, and give them the promised land that I promised to give to Abraham. So Moses goes in, he tries to negotiate them out. Guess what? Pharaoh doesn't like the idea. So his heart is hardened against God, and he says no. So then you have the Ten Plagues, if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, uh, or the Prince of Egypt, you know, these, uh, these tell the story of the Ten Plagues. And it's things like frogs and boils in their skin and the gnats and the, the Nile River turns to blood, and it's really bad. The Tenth Plague was very important for the New Testament, very important, because that is the, the, the Passover, okay, what we now call the Passover. So God says, I'm going to kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians. But if you kill a lamb and you put the blood on the doorpost of your home, the angel of death will pass over your home and your firstborn will be spared. So he says, kill the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, roast the lamb, eat the lamb, eat it with your staff in your hand and your sandals on your feet because you're going to be hightailing it out of there the next day. Because when the Egyptians realize that the angel of death has killed their firstborn, it's on now. It's war. So you better get the heck out of there. And so sure enough, um, that is called the Passover because the angel of death passes over the homes with the blood of the lamb. And in the New Testament, what we see is that Christ is the blood, he's the lamb. And it's his blood that allows the angel of death to pass over us. Okay, so, um, and, and Jesus was, of course, crucified when? At the Passover. The last supper that Jesus has with the disciples is a Passover meal, or it's one of the Passover meals. They might have had more than just the one meal. They might have had several that week, because Passover is the highest festival still to this day for the Jewish people. The Passover still remains the most holy festival and Sabbath, uh, you know, that, that there is. And so it was, it was it, it, it's incredible, if you think about it, that Jesus was crucified on basically the day of the Passover. So it's all pointing to Christ, okay? Eventually, the people get out. They cross through the sea. You know, the waters part. Uh, the, the Israelites get out. They're disobedient to God, so they don't make it into the promised land. They have to wait 40 years. They're punished by God. They have to wait 40 years to get into the promised land. Again, I'm skipping over whole chapters and books now. Um, and, in, and then in the books of Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus, the, the last three of the first five books of the Bible, which I believe were written by Moses, by the way, um, you have the law of God given to the people, the law of God. Now you have a covenant. Remember I said there was a covenant with Abraham? Now you have a covenant with Moses. This is very important to understand. The covenant with Moses begins now with the law of God given to the people. And you might know some of these laws. Do not eat shellfish, right? Do not eat anything with a cloven hoof. That's why Orthodox Jews today do not eat pig, okay? Um, or, or anything with a cloven hoof. Um, you know, so, um, the, you know, the Sabbath rest, the Ten Commandments, okay? And we'll, we're going to study the Ten Commandments later more in depth. But you have all of these laws, and there's, in fact, over 600 laws. 600. In fact, some people think it's more like 850 when you add up the do-nots and the do's, <laughs> right? Because a law can be a do-not-do-this, do-not-eat-the-cookie. It can also be eat-the-celery. Those are both, those are two laws, right? So, um, so when you add up all the laws that Moses gives to the people in this covenant, it's over 800. Thing. Oh, wait, 800 things that the people should not do. Pretty serious, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's not quite as much as our federal government, <laughs> but you know, it's a lot. It's a lot. So henceforth, until the time of Christ, the Mosaic covenant is the one in effect. The Mosaic covenant comes to an end the day that Jesus dies. Okay? And we're going to talk about that more later, but that is the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant started earlier. That's what we're under right now. We're under the, the Abrahamic covenant is going on right now this very day. We're living out the Abrahamic covenant. The promise of God's people from many nations being numbered as much as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea sand of the you know the beach or whatever um so we're living in the abrahamic covenant right now the mosaic covenant has come and gone okay and people debate what extent the law still applies i do believe the moral law of god still applies that's why we have the ten commandments the ten commandments are part of the mosaic covenant thou shalt not kill thou shalt not steal honor the sabbath day have no other gods etc because they're part of the moral law of god and the, moral, the morals of God never change. But the Mosaic Covenant assumes a nation where God is the, you know, God is the king, basically. And, and that has come and gone. So what we have in the rest of the Old Testament, and unfortunately we just don't have enough time to give it the proper credit that we, that we need, is the story then of the people into the land, and there, there you have periods where they're ruled by judges, you have periods where they're ruled by kings, and you have periods where they're ruled by prophets. Okay, They go through lots of kings. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. There are many prophets, and they kill prophets. They don't like the prophets. You think a prophet, they treat them well, they usually kill them because the prophet has something to say against Israel. You see stories of Israel falling into idolatry, worshiping other gods, and you think to yourself, how could they worship other gods? God got them out of Egypt. God parted the sea for them. God provided for them in 40 years in the wilderness. Yeah, people forget. People forget. Look around today. Look at all the good things we have today. And what do people say? God doesn't exist. I hate God. How could you say that? All the good he's done for you. Never underestimate the ability of a man to rebel against God. Okay? Man's, man's ability to hate God far surpasses, you know, <laughs> his ability to love God. That's, that's what's natural, really, to us. And anyway, so the Old Testament, um, is, is, is a, is a, there's a lot of history in there. You know, eventually the people uh, end up in the promised land, kind of what we call today modern Israel. Um, and there's a lot of warfare. There's a lot of carnage. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of bad things that happen, but God's promise to the people is that they will be a people with this land, and the 12 tribes will end up in this land. They build a temple, which is an incredibly elaborate building. Um, that first temple is destroyed uh, in the year 586 BC. About 90 years later, they build the second temple. That temple is destroyed in 70 AD, so about 40 years after Jesus is crucified. That temple is destroyed. And if you go to Israel today, if you go to Jerusalem today, and you go to the Wailing Wall, you ever see people praying at the Wailing Wall? That is one wall of the second temple, okay? Um, but that temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70, and the temple before that was destroyed in the year 586. And prophets foretold the destruction of the temple, and then you have prophets that are prophesying in the years when there is no temple. Um, and those are all really interesting periods. The last prophet is... 
Malachi is is about 450 years before John the Baptist. John the Baptist is really the last prophet of the Old Testament, and he's in the New Testament. And so there's a period where God does not give a word to the people through a prophet of about 450 years. Okay, That's called the intertestamental period. So again, if we look at the Bible and we, we find Matthew, okay, so again, like it's 877 in your Bible. So here you, here you have the last, uh, Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And here's the, here's the first gospel written, which wasn't the first book written, by the way. Matthew was not the first book of the New Testament written. Probably the, the letter to the Galatians was. But anyway, or Thessalonians. Um, in between here, see this piece of paper? This represents 450 years. 450 years of no word from God. Now think about that. America has only been around since 1776. I'm not very good at math. That's about 235, 40 years ago, right? Almost double that is the amount of time that there was no word from God to the, to the Hebrew people, okay? And so, so the Bible then, see the people, what's important about that is that the people actually knew the difference between a word from God and not a word from God or a, a, a true word from God and a false word from God. Um, and, and there are certain ways that a prophet could validate himself and could be proven to be false. But basically what we have then is the story of the covenants. You know, you've got, you've got, uh, you've got Genesis 1 to 11. It's kind of its own thing. And then you have a God taking a, a different a- approach. Instead of these worldwide cataclysmic events, we're now going to work with one guy, Abram. I'm just going to focus on this one person. Now, I'm not saying God isn't concerned about everything else going on, but now is a different pattern of salvation, okay? Um, so with Abraham, you have the Abrahamic covenant. That carries on to this day. And, and then you have Abraham's sons, and this is on the test. His son was Isaac. Then his sons were Jacob and Esau. Then, Joseph, and then Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph is the youngest. Joseph ends up in Egypt. Um, the, the, his brothers end up in Egypt. That's how you have uh, about the 12 tribes ending up in Egypt and growing, 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 growing. They, they have a fight with the Egyptians. They have to get out. You have the Passover experience there, the 10 plagues. The 10th plague is the Passover, the killing of the firstborn. They end up in the wilderness for 40 years because of disobedience. Eventually, they go into, uh, in the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible, of the Old Testament. That is the story of the conquest of the land. And that's where you do get a lot of the really tough stuff, where God is absolutely punishing people. Wicked, evil people, by the way. Wicked, evil people who, who killed children to their false gods, sacrificed children. So when God judges those people, frankly, it doesn't bother me, because these are not good people. These are not innocent people. They're guilty people. They're, 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 they're murderers. They're adulterers. Um, you, you know, they're pornographers. They're, they, they are people that God brings judgment upon. So um, eventually the people make their way into Israel. The rest of the Old Testament talks about the relationship between, you know, God and this people. And it is a very rocky one. And prophets bring the word of God. You have the, the, a lot of kings. The most famous king is King David. Okay, right? And David and Goliath. That's how he begins. And eventually David and Bathsheba, a story where David falls into adultery. David is the author of many of the Psalms. So we actually have, a, and David's son, Solomon, was very wise. He is the author of almost all of the Proverbs. 
So the stories of, say, the book of Kings or the book of Samuel, which tell the stories of these people, we have their own writings preserved as scripture as well, which is just utterly fascinating. Okay. Um, there's obviously just a lot to cover. You know, we could spend all day, for example, on Isaiah 53 if we wanted to. <laughs> um, but, but I'm trying to give you the very basic basis of knowledge. Let me just say one more thing. There's so much in here that it can be overwhelming to become familiar with it. So one thing that I do is I record a podcast up here on the third floor above us. And every day it's a recording of the Bible. It's called The Scarlet Thread. It's about eight or 10 minutes a day. So if you have a smartphone and you, um, you know how a podcast works, it's free. You just download it on your, on your phone and, and uh, you can listen to it. And every day is a reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament and a gospel. Scarlet thread. Like, yeah, the, like the color scarlet. Um, and there's kind of biblical significance to that. But, and then thread, like a, you know, like a, a thread. If you go to our church's website, um, you can, there's links to it there. All right. And you, if you go to iTunes, you can get it on your, if you have an iPhone or if you have an Android phone. You can, you can get, and I can show you this later, but you can get an app called CastBox and it will find it very easily. But it's every day is a little bit of Bible. And if you just listen to it every day, it'll, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, there's kind of a steep, you know, familiarity barrier there. But I put that out because I know that I want to be more familiar with the Bible. And so it kind of forces me, if I'm recording it, I've got to read it. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, and I don't have a great voice or anything like that. I'm not Morgan Freeman. Uh, I'm not Charlton Heston. I don't have the voice of God or anything like that. But um, it's about eight or ten minutes a day where you can just hear the Bible, you know, in the stories of the Bible. And, uh, and, it's, and it goes along with the church year, you know, um, like Catholics, you know, we have a church year. Easter season, Lent, Advent, Christmas, Pentecost. So it follows that, which, which for our tradition I think is helpful. So that's something I would recommend as a way to just get more familiar with the Old Testament because there's so much there. So next week what I'd like to do is look at the New Testament and um, what's in the New Testament. Again, very big picture. And uh, and then from there we're going to kind of drill down a little bit more. Okay? okay. Uh, I, I read the New Testament like twice. Okay, great. But all the time you read it, what I see is you find something new. Mm-hmm. Or something different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of inter- interpretation. Yeah. And yeah, I think so. My basic, I basically think that uh, um, Luther talks about the plain reading of the scripture. Um, so I think that the scripture is sufficiently clear for us to have appropriate and sufficient knowledge of God. There are some difficult passages, and sometimes people have different interpretations of things. So you, how you interpret scripture is, you know, a complicated question. Not complicated, but it's, it has to be talked through. Um, but I would say the more you read the scripture and get familiar with the scripture, the more you really get to know the authors. You know, you get to see the difference between Matthew and Luke, and Luke and Mark, and John and Matthew. You know, the four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They really become very different the more you read them. And, and, and it gets to the point where, the more you read them, you could have somebody like just 
read one sentence or maybe one story, and you could say, oh, that's the Gospel of Mark, or that's definitely in the Gospel of John, because that's, that's how John talks, that's how John writes. And that's really cool, you know, when it gets to be that familiar. That makes it a lot more fun. Um, and, um, but yeah, I mean, and, th and there are some difficult, you know, issues and differences. I mean, why don't all Christians agree on baptism? You know, we could look at some of the texts on baptism, you know, and we probably will later on. Why don't all Christians agree on the Lord's Supper? Same, same question, you know. Um, so you have different kind of ways of um, interpreting certain passages, but that's that's a that's a that's a, and that's a big topic. So.